Section twenty four of Hinduism and Buddhism An Historical Sketch, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Yearsley. Hinduism and Buddhism An Historical Sketch, Volume One by Charles Eliot. Section twenty four Buddhism in Practice. As I said above, it is easier to estimate the effects of Buddhism than of Hinduism, for its history is the chronicle of a great missionary enterprise, and there are abundant materials for studying the results of its diffusion. Even its adversaries must admit that it has many excellent qualities. It preaches morality and charity, and was the first religion to proclaim to the world, not to a caste or country, that these are the foundation of that law which, if kept, brings happiness. It civilized many nations, for instance the Tibetans and Mongols. It has practiced toleration and true unworldliness, if not without any exception, at least far more generally than any other great religion. It has directly encouraged art and literature, and, so far as I know, has never opposed the progress of knowledge but two charges may be brought against it which deserve consideration. First, that its pessimistic doctrines and monastic institutions are, if judged by ordinary standards, bad for the welfare of a nation. Second, that more than any other religion it is liable to become corrupt. In all Buddhist lands, though good laymen are promised the blessings of religion, the monastic and contemplative life is held up as the ideal in christendom this ideal is rejected by protestants and for the roman and oriental churches it is only one among others hence everyone's judgment of buddhism must in a large measure depend on what he thinks of this ideal monks are not of this world and therefore the world hateth them if they keep to themselves they are called lazy and useless if they take part in secular matters they meet with even severer criticism Yet can anyone doubt that what is most needed in the present age is more people who have leisure and ability to think? Whatever evil is said of Buddhist monks is also said of Mount Athos and similar Christian establishments. I am far from saying that this depreciation of the cloistered life is just in either case, but any impartial critic of monastic institutions must admit that their virtues avoid publicity and their faults attract attention. In all countries a large percentage of monks are indolent. It is the temptation which besets all but the elect. Yet the Buddhist ideal of the man who has renounced the world leaves no place for slackness, nor, I think, does the Christian. Buddhist monks are men of higher aspirations than others. They try to make themselves supermen by cultivating not the forceful and domineering part of their nature, but the gentle, charitable, and intelligent part. The laity treats them with the greatest respect, provided that they set an example of a life better than most men can live. A monastic system of this kind is found in Burma. I do not mean that it is not found in other Buddhist lands, but I cite an instance which I have seen myself, and which has impressed most observers favorably. The Burmese monks are not far from the ideal of Gautama, yet perhaps by adhering somewhat strictly to the letter of his law, they have lost something of the freedom which he contemplated. In his time there were no books, 
the mind found exercise and knowledge in conversation a monastery was not a permanent residence except during the rainy season but merely a halting place for the brethren who were habitually wanderers continually hearing and seeing something new hermits and solitary dwellers in the forests were not unknown but assuredly the majority of the brethren had no intention of secluding themselves from the intellectual life of the age what would gautama have done had he lived some hundreds or thousands of years later i see no reason to doubt that he would have encouraged the study of literature and science he would probably have praised all art which expresses noble and spiritual ideas while misdoubting representations of sensuous beauty the second criticism that buddhists are prone to corrupt their faith is just for their courteous acquiescence in other creeds enfeebles and denaturalizes their own in annam korea and some parts of china though there are temples and priests more or less deserving the name of buddhist there is no idea that buddhism is a distinct religion or mode of life such statements as that the real religion of the burmese is not buddhism but animism are i think incorrect but even the burmese are dangerously tolerant this weakness is not due to any positive defect since buddhism provides for those who lead the higher life a strenuous curriculum and for the laity a system of morality based on rational grounds and differing little from the standard accepted in both europe and china except that it emphasizes the duties of mankind to animals the weakness comes from the absence of any command against superstitious rites and beliefs when the cardinal principles of buddhism are held strongly these accessories do not matter but the time comes when the creeper which was once an ornament grows into the walls of the shrine and splits the masonry the faults of western religions are mainly faults of self-assertion such as the inquisition and opposition to science the faults of indian religions are mainly tolerance of what does not belong to them and sometimes of what is not only foreign to them but bad in itself buddhism has been both praised and blamed as a religion which acknowledges neither god nor the soul and its acceptance in its later phases of the supernatural has been regarded as proving the human mind's natural need of theism but it is rather an illustration of that craving for personal though superhuman help which makes roman catholics supplement theism with the worship of saints on the whole it is correct to say that buddhism except perhaps in very exceptional sects has always taken and still takes a point of view which has little in common with european theism the world is not thought of as the handiwork of a divine personality nor the moral law as his will the fact that religion can exist without these ideas is of capital importance but any statements implying that buddhism divorces morality from the doctrine of immortality may be misunderstood for it teaches that just as an old man may suffer for the follies of his youth so faults committed in one life may be punished in another rewards and punishments in another world were part of the creed of asoka and tradition represents the missionaries who converted ceylon as using this simple argument it would not however be true to say that buddhism makes the value of morality contingent on another world the life of an arhat which includes the strictest morality 
is commended on its own account as the best and happiest existence european assertions about buddhism often imply that it sets up as an ideal and goal either annihilation or some condition of dreamy bliss modern buddhists who mostly neglect nirvana as something beyond their powers just as the ordinary christian does not say that he hopes to become a saint lose much of the master's teaching but do it less injustice than such misrepresentations the buddha did not describe nirvana as something to be won after death but as a state of happiness attainable in this life by strenuous endeavour a state of perfect peace but compatible with energy as his own example showed end of section twenty four